Immersive Design Podcast. This is your host, Brian McGowan. Today, we're going to be talking to veteran show writer, Stacey Barton. Let's get right into it. Stacey Barton on. She's a veteran show writer, worked with the Walt Disney Company, SeaWorld, among many others. Uh, she wrote The Family Who Saved Christmas, Club Evil, Hoist a Sail with Jack Sparrow, and a bunch of other ones that you can find on her LinkedIn. Welcome, Stacey. Hi, thanks for having me. So first thing that I like to ask people is what do you define as the immersive design field? Oh, wow. That's a big question. <laughs> um, to be honest, um, there's so much incredible stuff happening now more than ever. Um, my firsthand experience with the immersive um, world is really creating theatrical worlds from Disney films that we create uh, an environment in which the audience can step inside it, kind of like an attraction on steroids. We take over ballroom spaces. I'm not sure if I know exactly how I would define immersive, except that it's it's really taking the concept of themed entertainment kind of all the way to the edge, you know, creating um, uh, the sensor, the senses, uh, the ability to interact with the story in real time um, in, in a space that gives the audience more agency than perhaps being in a ride vehicle would give you. I, I certainly have enjoyed the ability to create the environments that allow the guests to um, really be the stars. I think that's that's what that's what Walt intended in some ways when he created the first theme parks, and of course, so many people have built upon that um, idea to create a world in which you can step inside it. And to me, that's just exciting. And the more real that becomes, the the more the more fun I think the audience can have. So, you know, you were saying that, you know, the best part about it is building these worlds and uh, how you contribute to that. So what exactly does a show writer do to bring those worlds to life? Right. Well, I can tell you what I've done. I don't know that it's the same for all show writers. You know, I, I just have a, my experience. Um, but in the immersive experiences that I've been a part of at um, those have all really only been at Disney, I think I'd have to think about it for a minute. But in those situations, we take over a ballroom and um, create the the scene. For instance, Alice in Wonderland, um, and and create the world of the wacky Wonderland. And um, as the show writer in that situation, I work closely with the director and the producer as well to kind of define um, what piece of that um, IP, what what piece of that story, or Usually it's a film for us. Um, what piece of that are we going to make come to life? Because you can't really make the entire um, film come to life. Uh, so as the writer, I work really closely with that to decide what's the best entrance point for the audience. What is the best um, nugget of that world that will give us um, a- an experience that can really be rich and that the Again, the audience can really have agency inside. So, for instance, with Alice in Wonderland, the, the place we chose was the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. It's probably pretty obvious. <laughs> um, we were able to 
create um, a way that they got into the wonderland and a way that they left. And then while they were there, we had this 40 foot um, tea table uh, built for us in China that had teapots that actually whistled and steamed and the dormouse popped in and out of several one several of the pots at different times. And uh, the family sat at the table and uh, the Mad Hatter at one end, the March Hare at the other, and then the different characters that you would expect to see uh, appeared. And there was a stage around the um, table that the performers would come out and we had an acapella group, we had dancers, we had dancing, um, playing cards. And then at the end, the, um, the queen, the queen of hearts came out and put Alice on trial and uh, decided to take her head off, of course. And that led us into the off with your head ball and it became a top 40 dance party. So in all of that kind of creation, I'm there along the way deciding what bits we keep, what bits we don't need what makes for the best arc in this one two hour experience and then of course any scripting that needs to happen in a situation like that it's largely improvisational so the scripting is um a lot of the language that those characters would use and then um ancillary characters that allow us to talk to the family because of course um the characters can't leave their storyline so uh any scripting of that sort falls to me. Um, but probably the biggest thing I do in an immersive experience is write the narrative, the um, the treatment that is what all the different disciplines are going to follow. And so um, I always say if I've done my job well, there's less and less language. So it starts out with lots of writing, lots of storytelling about where we're going and why we're going there and what it looks like and feels like and tastes like and smells like. And then the different disciplines go off and running and as they build and do their own storytelling with their discipline, then the, the narrative treatment can get smaller and then we go to script and uh, that's kind of how it works. <laughs> I don't know if that was made sense for you. It definitely does, you know, because I think that a lot of people, when they hear show writer, you know, they would assume script writer. Right. You know, and that's, you know, one small part of it, but it's not the entire thing. How do you kind of, you know, focus in on what lines you want to use from the film, let's say, or the book? versus, you know, original lines that you're going to put into this performance? Um, it, well, it depends on where I'm working, but um, in the in the world of Disney, the there's some very strict um, guidelines for uh, what the characters can do and say. Um, Alice in Wonderland is an easier one because um, it would be fine for Alice to go, oh, hello, who are you? <laughs> you know, but you, you wouldn't have the same scenario if it was, um, you know, some of the other uh, stories, but um, basically choosing, it's it's more about choosing what will be an effective experience for the audience and then supplementing that with, or not supplementing, supporting that with what's in the environment, what the performers do and say. So the audience is really, for me, the guiding factor. So rather than thinking about um, what I would love to write or what I think would be cool to say or, or what I want to see on stage, I really come at it from the other side, from the audience side. And, and what would they what would they want? What would they be engaged in? And that really comes from my I didn't start as a writer. I started as a performer 
an audience participatory improvisational street theater performer. And in those shows, um, if the audience didn't like what you presented, they just walked away. <laughs> so I learned very early that um, the audience is, is who I work for. Well, I think that that's something that is so obvious and so easy to forget when you're you know, a designer is the whole point of creating this is for the guest. Um, a lot of the conversations I have with people, you know, they want to create the coolest attraction, the most exhilarating attraction or, you know, fear inducing attraction, but they don't really get what is, what would be cool for me as opposed to thinking, you know, what would the family that's going to go through this, you know, what does dad think? What does the son think? What does mom think? How do you draw on each one of their perspectives to, you know, give each one of them uh, an enjoyable experience and something that's memorable? Yes. And I mean, I think everyone has the intent to do it for the guest, but um, as the as the storyteller, story driver, perhaps you could say, um, I find myself asking those questions and gearing, um, you know, what I what I write based on that. And and there is a difference, I think. I mean, I think you're right. It is obvious and it is also hard to always remember. But I have found that my role as a writer, I don't know if that's the role of the writer or how Stacy handles the role she's in, but I find that I'm constantly double checking how is the audience being affected? Um, how is that gonna work? You know, when you get into the creation of things, especially if you're doing a, a build, you you want to do the cool technology you want to have the amazing moments and there's that th that's all needed um and i think in the in the scope of that what i find myself sometimes saying is that's an amazing technology but it doesn't suit this particular iteration of this particular story or maybe we should use that technology in this other spot rather than that spot, or maybe that technology works on this other story we're working on over here in the other room, you know? So um, just to remember that the technology, the any of the parts, the set, the music, the costumes, you know, all of it serves the story and the story serves the audience. And with that kind of reminder, then we can be as absolutely fabulous as we can be with all of the, um, all, all of the amazing creativity that's out there and the designers are just tremendous. How do you kind of get down to what the kernel of the story is? Like, I th think that it's kind of interesting, let's say with, you know, Alice in Wonderland, there's quite a few different themes you could go with, you know, whether it's curiosity or, you know, just having fun with the absurd or, you know, maturing and kind of becoming an adult, you know, towards the end of it. How do you pick, you know, which... um theme is a driving force in the story that you're telling. Right. Well, it, that does depend on the audience. Um, and in the particular conversation that we're in at the moment, talking about doing these immersive experiences where we take over the ballrooms, we have particular um, audiences that we're doing that for. Uh, but there is a general um, understanding, you know, do you have a family audience? Do you have a, an after hours club audience? You know, so like the audience for this Alice in Wonderland um, event that we did is different than that Club Evil event that we did where that was, you know, about the Disney divas of evil and the kind of nightclub they would have if they all joined forces. 
So um, starting again with the audience and then, um, you know, for Alice in Wonderland, the the simple reality was that we were going to have adults and children, grandparents and teenagers. And so who doesn't love to enter this sort of wacky world? And so um, it was the, the topsy-turvy tea party type feel that we were going for and all that music and the characters and the food that was presented between the show elements was all themed. And in fact, they actually got white chocolate roses that they painted red with um, liquid red icing. So the food even becomes um, a part of it. So the really in that one, it was um, about the topsy-turvy nature. And I guess that really was chosen in part at the beginning when we decided that the, that the best place to stop and play for a while was at the tea party. Mm-hmm. So um, then from that is then born, what, what do you, what do they see while they're there and how do you get them in and how do you get them out? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's probably the best one to go with. You know, if you're going to be a dance party, you want it to be fun throughout and, you know, exhilarating and having much of silliness, you know, will get you a little bit amped up and want to dance. So I, I think that that makes sense. Um, you know, other ones I'm sure are a lot more difficult. Yes. The dance at the end was, um, for one of the iterations of this that had a, an older, an older demographic. So they played in the topsy turvy world as adults being kids again. And so between their courses were fancy cocktails. And so that's what, that's the one that ended in the dance party. The one we did, um, with the families actually, I don't think we did end with the dance party, um, if my memory serves me. <laughs> Do you think that that changes um, what comes before it? You know, if you're building to a dance party, um, do you have to you know, add a crescendo in the one, you know, that doesn't have a dance party so that you, you know, leave on a high note? Did that change at all? Yeah, I think the the one we did for the family, there was an actual birthday involved. And so the playfulness and the wacky world and the tea party, the unbirthday tea party, did eventually did eventually turn into a birthday moment, and um, for a child. And so that was the kind of the climax. You know, one of the other um, fun parts of that was we were actually able to create the doorknob as a character. So it was a it was an actually a, a puppet um, with an actor who worked the puppet who could see through videography the family and could actually interact comedically in real time with the family as the doorknob <laughs> and and that that kind of helped us in and out of of different scenes with um the family a particular event uh you know one thing that you mentioned uh when you were a, a performer how did that you know benefit you when you're a show writer now uh, you know of course you have the experience of seeing um, how people react to show writing, um, but you know how else, and maybe uh, not as intuitive of ways. I always say there's there's um, in that in that relationship with the audience to to really honor and respect it. And you know when when you're doing street theater, um, people don't have to stay; they can just walk away. And so I learned early on that I am really nothing without the audience. And I think the pandemic has shown us that um, and reminded us of that in a really, potentially a really beautiful way, because if there's no audience, there's no show. 
Um, and so it doesn't really matter how fabulous we are, how great our message or how amazing our skill, you know, if there's no, if there's no audience there, it's just, you know, we're just listening to ourselves talk. And, uh, so I think that, um, factors deeply in how I operate. And we've touched on that some already, but I do always say there's three questions that I, I like to ask on, on any project, not even, it doesn't even have to be an immersive one. It could be a stage show or a fireworks show or a parade. Um, but it's what's the promise that you're offering the audience? What emotional promise? What story promise? Um, how are you going to deliver that promise? And that's where you touch into, are we going to do a parade or a, a show or a fireworks display? And then the third question is, what does the audience take away um, emotionally? You know, what do they leave with? What what feeling do they leave with? What do they feel empowered? Do they feel a sense of belonging? Um, do they feel a tenderness for their family? Uh, are they hopeful for the future? Um, but if you ask those three questions as you go, that helps you stay connected to the audience and and mindful and intentional about what you're giving them. You know, what are you promising them? How are you going to give that to them? And then what ultimately do they leave with? And sometimes there's um, a bit of merchandise, perhaps, that they can leave with, um, not in a way of, of trying to get more money out of people, but because people, and especially children, um, but not only children, they love to have a tangible piece that reminds them of the memory of the experience. So I think that audience-centric nature that really grew from my work as a street theater performer still informs the way I approach um, a show, and and we need all the we need all the different disciplines and the different perspectives uh, at the table. That's what makes themed entertainment so magical. Is you have a diversity of thought around the table when creating um, anything, and there are things that other people look at that I don't think of, <laughs> and so it that's I think that's what makes it so magical. So one thing you know I thought was kind of interesting your second question of how do you deliver this mm. how much um input i guess would the show writer have on that like let's say you know you said the best way to deliver this message is through a fireworks display um but you know that's not in the budget we can only have you know x amount of dollars then you know that just is that would blow our budget so would you have to rewrite the show for that or um I guess it you know might you know depend on which company you're working for at the time, uh, but how do you advocate to get your vision to be executed? Right, and that that is often determined like what it's going to be, but often there will be a large brainstorm to say how should we use this new IP, and so I would just be one of the people in the room, you know, determining that. At other times, you'll be given, um, we need a fireworks show, and we want you to make it about this. And then sometimes, the, the, as you said, the scope might change or the leadership might change. And they'll say, no, we decided we're not going to do that in the fireworks. We're going to do that in the parade. So my role as a writer, even though I do ask those questions, is often to make them make sense when those changes come to me as the writer. So I may not be able to say, I really think this would make a better parade than a, than a fireworks show. But when given the, um, 
if I'm given what I have to do, then the second question is, is already answered for me. So we're going to deliver it in a parade. So that may be the question that's answered when I begin. Um, but then how are we going to deliver the emotional experience through the vehicle of the parade, through the mm -hmm. vehicle of the fireworks? So there's a secondary question there of, of how are you going to create that emotional experience? So for instance, um, I was on a, a project, the cast service celebration, which is um, the the celebration that honors cast members who've got, you know, 25, 35, 45 years of service. And we were creating the fireworks show. Well, that was already determined as one of the elements. So I didn't get to choose that, but I had to choose how we were going to make that audience feel. Um, and so the promise in that situation was that they were going to take, we were going to take them down memory lane and remember not only different moments in their career and what shows were happening at Disney, but what was happening at home. And oh, that when that movie came out, that's when we had our second kid or when um, that attraction opened, that's um, when we had our 20th wedding anniversary. So the promise there was that we would make them feel as if they, uh, or we would remind them that, that they had been a part of Disney all this time. And so, then the answer to the second one, how to deliver that became in what did language did we choose to use? What music did we choose to use? What order did we um, put that experience in so that when we got to the end, they would take away this deep sense of belonging and accomplishment um, for, for their uh, celebration about their their longevity with the company. And I, I think one thing that, you know, you touch on quite a bit um, is, you know, the emotion of that. You know, like I was saying earlier, I think that a lot of people try to go for more of the exhilarating emotions and you seem to be more of the uh, empathic emotions. Does Disney go after the writer for what their specialty is or do you have to conform to the project? Oh, I change based on every project. Sometimes it's just easier to explain what I'm talking about if I use something that is a little bit more sentimental. But certainly when you want to give someone a thrill, that's that's exactly the same formula. You mm -hmm. you have to think what's the what's the order of that, right? You have to build up you have to build up this the surprise or you have um, you know, in a horror in a haunted house situation, you know, there's a rhythm of how long you go before there's another shock, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you're still thinking about the audience. What's your promise? Your promise is that you're going to surprise them and scare them and, you know, um, make them have that rush that you feel when you are frightened. And there's a, there's a definite formula and a rhythm to that. And you have to continually be mindful so that if you've got this new, um, technology or uh, a set piece or whatever that you think is going to make this most amazing scare that you've kind of alluded to all the while that you want to place that at the right spot of that um, haunted, uh, you know, event, attraction, haunted house mm -hmm. or whatever. So the principles still apply with other emotions that are not sentimental. Um, you know, if you, if you take the you know, Marvel or Star Wars, those kinds of things, you have that great sense of heroic um, capabilities and, 
empowerment and feelings of victory and defeating the evil foe and those all those emotions are they're fabulous to work with too um and then i'm thinking you know in the in the harry potter realm it's um it's magic but it's also really self-empowerment you know stepping into um your own power and and feelings like that that are really rich and dramatic um and those are those are really important to to make sure in the same way what are you promising and how are you going to give it to them and what are they going to walk away with um i i think that it, it's not just for sentimental situations you have to be able to adapt to whatever the audience is and whatever the um, story is or the intellectual property um, and it does change it changes the language you use it changes um you know how you how you bring them in where the entrance point is again for the audience and, and how you um give them agency in it you know an excellent example in harry potter um and you know several other attractions but you know putting the guest in the forefront you know one of their biggest things that you do is going into olive ender's wand shop and the wand chooses you and it's you know like you're you're meant to be here and you know this story is about you i think uh, you know, putting the guest, not only their experience in the forefront, but like the land reacting to them, um, you know, can definitely be an empowering experience. Oh, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just that, that is a, just a, a tremendous example of, um, of what I'm talking about. And I think, I think that, you know, themed entertainment, the whole premise behind it is that the audience steps into the show, right? That's the premise behind, you know, all, all of those attractions and lands and theme parks, um, cruise ships. Um, but I think that, that we're entering a new, um, realm with, um, the explosion of immersive experiences outside of theme parks and the, um, the amazing strides that those groups are making and, and pushing the envelope to say, well, maybe it's not just that they get to walk around in there. Maybe they get to be a wizard who has a wand, <laughs> choose them, or um, maybe they get to, to be, um, you know, a superhero. And I think those experiences um, really showcase how powerful it is. And you know, when I worked in those street theater shows all those years ago, we told stock stories um, like Romeo and Juliet, and we would pick Romeo and Juliet out of the audience. And we always picked grandparents that age because they have nothing to fear, nothing to lose, and they're willing to play so delightfully. But then they became the star of the show. So we didn't just let them up there and we didn't use them to make fun of them to make ourselves look good. Um, we really elevated them to the status of star and allowed them to alter what happened on the stage. And what happens when you do that is that those two people then, the entire audience now is themselves, they feel themselves in those two people that are up starring in the show and they get the experience as well. And I think with um, all of the video game 
gamers that we have now in the audiences and and the generation of young people with children now are used to social media and starring in their own story. I think that as um, as designers and writers and artists in the themed entertainment realm, um, I think we have to step it up a notch and make the interactivity even more uh, special. How do you think that, you know, maybe in five, 10 years, you know, what will storytelling look like in the theme parks? You know, of course, that's very hard to predict, but, you know, what the trends, how they are, do you see any difference on how they tell stories now versus how they will? Well, you know, it's that's always a hard one to, to know because you think at the moment what's going to happen later and then we look back and laugh at that. But I think at the moment, um, something simple like, um, like cues, like waiting for, for an attraction. I think that um, in my mind, there it would be lovely if there would be some way to include people's cell phones, you know, and create communities um, with some sort of um, elevated app where the story begins before you even get there. And maybe you're put in a group of 20 people and, and your mission is slightly different um, or, or your um, moment to begin is different. And maybe there's something that happens throughout that connects those people. I just think the way to connect people with everybody's got these little computers in their pockets and screens and um, augmented reality. And it just there's, there's so much there that I think the way we connect guests to each other and the way we connect them to the story is something that I think might develop in a different way um, in the future uh, and and potentially change how people go in. You know, we've spent an awful lot of time on attractions and rides, and perhaps there will be something that's more of a walkthrough um, attraction that, that allows for more interactivity. I think I think we've gone from high touch to high tech, and I hope that we go back to a little bit more of high touch, um, where you have more live entertainers inside an experience, kind of like Ollivander's, where you have that um, that human connection um, alongside tremendous um, technology. I don't know where it will go, but I, I do think that remembering that the audience wants more and more agency in the experience um, based on what they're used to at home, uh, I think that we would be wise to at least pay attention to that and consider that as we move forward as an industry. Yeah, I definitely think that that's something that you're seeing a little bit more. Of course, you know, this is a large budget attraction of uh, Rise of Resistance, but, you know, for example, um, after you get captured, you know, the first order is talking to you and interrogating you and being a little bit, you know, mean, uh, but not in like in a intimidating way, but, you know, kind of giving you a little bit of uneasy vibes. And I think that that might be, you know, something that people kind of go more towards is expecting the audience to play along and kind of, um, you know, forcing them to come out of their shell as opposed to a lot of the older attractions. Um, you know, the cue is just something that you're observing and, you know, you go on to the ride and that, again, is something you observe and then you go off and discuss it. Um, I think that, you know, that could definitely be a huge component is the interacting and, and being able to touch 
uh, things in using technology more in ways of uh, that it's behind the scenes as opposed to showing people, look at this technology, isn't that cool? <laughs> right. Well, and I, I think, again, you have that promise. If you set the promise to the audience that they will matter, that they will make a difference, that they're going to be asked to participate, that's a promise you set early and then you better come through and deliver it. And then the audience will leave feeling as though they got what they had been promised, like in the situation you you just described. Um, so I just have one uh, last question for us. Um, the most common question, I'm sure you get it quite often, um, how do I get into this field? And of course, that's basically an impossible question to answer, uh, you know, in a abbreviated amount of time. But you know, what, what resources do you think would be the most useful to someone that's trying to get into this field? So there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. And, and one of them is, um, if you're looking particularly at show writing, um, there, in, at least in my experience, there is a huge amount of writing that's narrative treatment, that's storytelling, that's, that's describing the experience of the audience from start to finish. And the script writing is a small part of my writing hours. So I would say that um, any new writers out there to be able to, to um, work in that field, you know, go to smaller um, companies perhaps, or be involved in the event world um, where, where the narrative treatment and then the script are required. Um, that, that is a, that's a way to get your kind of your foot in the door and and to be useful. And I always say, you know, listen really well when you have the chance to work somewhere. Maybe you volunteer at a, a, a huge haunted house event in your hometown and you write the narrative treatment for everybody who's working on it. And then maybe you write some of the language, but, but whatever, however you get into those um, gigs, make sure that you listen carefully and then you deliver what, what, um, you're asked, deliver it better than they asked for it. And a little sooner, um, and a little more than they had hoped. Uh, so that's just kind of an, in general, um, way of approaching getting work. Um, I'm a 20 year contractor. I've never been full-time anywhere. And that's, I think how I've been able to work in so many places, um, because once they use me, I'm I'm easy to work with. Uh, I don't hold my words as priceless. They're just one of the tools that the whole team is using. Um, so I think you have to be willing to be incredibly collaborative. I think you have to be willing to take um, extreme direction, like we don't like that at all, start over, or we changed our mind and we're doing something totally different. And you have to be able to go with that flow and adjust your spirit and your attitude and jump in and do it again. And, you know, in the same way that there's, um, you know, people say as an actor, your job is auditioning and every now and then you get a gig. Um, that's really the role of a writer in themed entertainment because it's so collaborative. If you want to write your own story and see it through to the end, you should be a screenwriter or a playwright or a novelist. Um, but to expect collaborative situations and um, and that, that rewriting is your job rather than writing, 
I think those are some really important things to know heading into um, the space of being a show writer and themed entertainment. Um, and then I think there, um, I'm sure there are uh, lots of um, resources, but the one that I do know of is the themed entertainment creative workshop series. Um, and they have, um, I did a masterclass for them. I think you were there, um, last Friday and it was just great. It was hugely successful. There were, I think, 90 people there. Um, but they also have, um, like workshops where you can, you can be in a workshop. And I do know they have a writing track for, um, for that. And so I would, I would say look for places like that and other workshops where, um, you can be around people that are doing the same thing. You can be mentored, reach out to other show writers. Um, I know LinkedIn isn't one of the most popular um, social media platforms for young professionals, but it's a really good one for themed entertainment. And I would say reach out to writers you you that look interesting to you or reach out to writers who are working on an IP that you admire and ask for a meet and greet, You know, ask them questions. And um, internships is another amazing way, maybe an unpaid internship. I know that internships are difficult right now because of the pandemic, but they will return. Um, and I just say, look for where you can actually do the work and get some of that on your resume so that you can go to a place that you, you know, if you have a dream of working at Universal or Disney or SeaWorld or wherever, um, you can you can show that you've actually done some work in that field. Um, those would be some of the things that I would I would encourage. What I guess when you're first starting off, you know, people want to see your portfolio. Uh, do you think that it'd be a better to have a variety of work, uh, or would it be better to have you know many of the same thing to kind of give people a perspective on what you enjoy? Um, you know, for example, would it be better to have a script, um, you know, a treatment and a poem? Or would it be better to have, you know, 10 scripts? Hmm. I am not sure I have um, a very educated advice on that. I, I do think that um, one thing that is a strength of mine, but can also be a weakness is that I have done such a wide variety. And so sometimes it is hard for someone to know what project to bring me in on. So I have combated that by saying I'm the Swiss army knife of storytellers. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if you have a singular passion, if you are, you know, a Star Wars buff or a Marvel buff um, or a Mickey buff or <laughs> Harry <laughs> Potter, um, I think there can be some value in that. Um, I would say I'm my personality is a, um, I go where the yes is. So if I've okay. been, if I've found places where I can do my work and there's been a variety of work, then that's kind of become my MO. Um, and if you're someone who really only likes superheroes, then just find all the places and the people that want help with superheroes and then just go for that. Um, I don't know that there's a right or wrong, but I, I think that whatever you have done or whatever you have access to, you know, take it and, and then use it to your advantage when you want to get the next thing. Well, I think that's, you know, good advice is basically, you know, put yourself on the page and, you know, hopefully that's someone that they want to work with. Um, you know, where's the best place for people to reach out to you um, online? 
Um, LinkedIn for sure. Right now, I'm pretty active on there. I'm actively looking for new um, gigs and and projects. Uh, the pandemic has, you know, pushed me back on my keister like everybody else. So I'm pretty active on there right now. So definitely reach out to me. Um, you know, connect with me, private message me. Maybe we can chat. Um, follow my posts. Um, and I'm I may be doing some some more master classes. Um, I'm working on that right now. So stay in touch with me and there might be some um, some educational opportunities, workshops, fun ones. I'm not I'm not very academic, but um, fun ones that that will be coming up. So if you follow me on LinkedIn, you can find that. I am also on Instagram, but I find that I I don't spend as much time there, but it's Stacy Barton show writer on Instagram. But LinkedIn, I think, is probably the best place. Uh, to find me professionally. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And um, it was fun to talk to you. And uh, I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Immersive Design Podcast. I've been your host, Brian McGowan. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation with show writer Stacey Barton. If you want to chat more about the immersive design field, please feel free to contact me on LinkedIn. We'll see you again soon.